0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, And just a heads up, this episode has some pretty graphic descriptions in it. So take care if you're listening with little ones around. I've had a lot of requests for an explanation on what is happening with Roe v Wade and abortion access in the States, and I've covered some of that um, and covered our own situation here in Ireland. One of the things that fascinates me is that uh, some places in the States still have more access to abortion even after the overturning of Roe v Wade than we do in Ireland. but. Places like Alabama. Alabama became the first state in decades to make abortion a crime in almost every case. Doctors who perform an abortion can face 99 years in prison. More and more US states are introducing laws that severely restrict abortions. Mississippi, Ohio, Georgia, they've already passed bills banning abortions once a fetal heartbeat has been detected. Interestingly, Mississippi has banned abortions after 15 weeks, like I said, which is causing a lot of protests around the US. But you have to keep in mind that in Ireland, you can only get it up to 12 weeks. So if you're shocked at what is happening over there, make sure that you spread your shock closer to home. The Supreme Court voting to overrule the landmark Roe v. Wade uh, ruling is, is a fight that's gone on in the US for decades. And one of the reasons for that is because people disagree on when, after conception the bunch of cells or later the fetus or the embryo becomes a person. The argument both in Ireland and abroad is that making abortion illegal does not stop it happening it just makes it unsafe because people will always get abortions and that is what today's episode is about. We're going to go back in time decades ago when abortions were illegal in the USA and we're going to meet a woman who found herself caught up in this world who ended up doing abortions herself but then almost accidentally she created a movement that was about so much more this woman's name is carol downer and she joins me now hi carol thanks so much for joining me
1: good morning nice to be here
0: will you take me back to the 1960s when you had four children and 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 a turbulent marriage and found yourself pregnant again what happened
1: um if i'm understanding your question um well first of all i had six children oh six okay (laughs) Yeah, Um, uh, which the younger two would be glad I mentioned them, Um, (laughs) that um, I was listening to my, uh, not my radio, but a radio at my workplace. I had a temp job at that time uh, as a typist clerk, and there was a meeting of the National Organization for Women. And I thought that was a very great idea, and I went home. My husband drove me to the meeting, and I arrived to find um, at this uh, kind of banquet room in a local restaurant that um, there were about 100 women there. Uh, But of them, only three uh, was interested in the abortion committee, which – was the only one that I, as a housewife really took much of an interest in at all. The rest were to deal with career women. was this before you had had your own experience? No, I had had an illegal abortion about five years previously to that, and I um, you know knew just exactly uh, what an outrage it was and 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 not you know how all I had to go through for it and what it meant to um me and to women in general. Uh, so I was, you know, highly tuned into it.
0: And I think that that was my question. So at that time when you had the abortion, you had four kids, was I was I correct in that? And then
1: I had four children at that time.
0: And how did you find someone how did you find access to it when when it was illegal?
1: At that point um I just started asking all my friends, all my acquaintances. And uh, at my work, uh, there were uh, a number of uh, black women there that uh, worked in the typing pool with me. And one of them uh, gave me a a phone number to call. And I called the uh, number and found someone that I made an appointment with. And my husband uh, drove me to the appointment. And I mean, not he had offered to stay in the marriage, uh, but he recognized that my what my decision was. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in the business district in the downtown black business, business district. And I saw an, a door with had the number on it, but no other marking. And at the top was a, a door that led to an, a completely empty room. and. A uh, woman in uh, nursing uniform came out, greeted me, and uh, led me into the other room in which they were, again, it was empty except for an exam table with the stirrups, and she told me to get on, uh, take on, off my uh, underwear and uh, get up on the um, table, which, of course, I did, and um, then the, um, abortionist came in the room, uh, from the bind where I couldn't really catch a good, not that I looked at him. I realized that that was not a good thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, because then I maybe, you know, would be able have to identify him and I, I wanted to protect his identity. Okay. Uh, so, um. Uh, he got right to work in a very calm and and you know effective way. Unfortunately, since there was no anesthesia and it was the old-fashioned DNC, uh, it was incredibly painful. It was just really more uh, worse than any of my births. And um, I just it was just intense agony. It uh, didn't go on for too long, I don't think. Um, uh, you know, maybe ten minutes. I, I just don't yeah, know okay. exactly. That was over. That part was over, and then he did, he kept busy. Yeah, I was, since I couldn't see what he was doing, I didn't know he was doing what he was doing uh, for another while. And at, at long last, um, he you know took out the speculum, and he said, "Well, we're done." And he gave me another slip of paper with a phone number on it. And he said, call me back in a week. And of course, if you have any problem, call me right away. But assuming everything's going to be fine, why call me then. I went home. My my husband drove me home. And um, he left because we were uh, living apart at that time. And my children was my grandmother. And I just went into the soundest sleep I've ever had in my life, And I didn't wake until the next morning. And I looked out, I heard the birds singing. <laughs> and I said, "I'm alive <laughs> I, I am and i I didn't realize how scared how scared I really was yeah. that that I was amazed that I was alive. And um everything, Went fine for a week, but then I called the doctor and uh, he said, "Now I I packed your uterus. He said, that means I put gauze in it just in case you were starting to bleed. I wanted to protect against that. Now it has to come out. So what you need to do is you just need to reach up there and grab that uh, string that you'll feel and pull it out. Um, It has to come out. Then, So then I proceeded to do that. I got into the tub and lay back and uh, felt for this string, started to pull it out, and my God, it was just like pulling a knife out. And was this, this
0: was the common, like this is what was happening in in these sort of like underground abortions?
1: Uh, You know, I, I... I can tell you in retrospect over the years, because being an activist, I've heard many, many abortion stories. And so, yes, in retrospect, I can tell you that I was very lucky. I did get a thorough and careful practitioner. And when was it that you realized
0: that, that while you were lucky and you had a, a safe abortion, that people doing these illegal abortions like yours were not always doctors? Some of them didn't have any medical training, how, what part of the of your journey did you realize that
1: you know over the years uh, i've run across some of these guys and i do say guys yeah not to say that there weren't women too but it was the guys that were so sleazy <laughs> and uh they'd say oh i've done a course and then, then they go on to tell me and i and i believe them <laughs> because they uh, you know uh, they fall into that category, and they just really bragged about it. And um, the, the most callous, um, stupid people—I mean, they were just lower-level persons, you know. And I just cringed when I heard them, but I was paying close attention because I was taking notes, you know.
0: Yeah. So then you're you're kind of thinking like, well, if these malevolent idiots can do this, why? why can't I do it and, and provide a safe course of action for people? So what were your next steps? How did you move from taking notes to actually taking action?
1: Uh, well, the now meeting. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, once I had the abortion, I just went back to my life as usual. Um, however, um, during that period of time, and I think uh, I believe this was similar in, in Ireland prior to the um legalization of abortion. Um, There was a a tremendous uh, interest uh, nationally. Um, In the United States, it was initially mostly from doctors and ministers and um, um, lawyers, professional people. The media ran a lot of uh, specials on the issue. so, you know, in the, during the time that I uh, joined, well, of course, this was the uprise of, of women in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was one of millions of women that, that jumped on board, you know, with this um, uh, effort to bring about social change for women
0: So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a headstuff Stuff Podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Head Stuff Podcast member for five euro plus that, uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal, five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you wanna do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Head stuff Podcast members are my favorite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm gonna stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. And so how did you move then from being someone who is watching all of this and being an activist to... Actually, taking action and learning the procedure of, 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 doing an abortion.
1: Well, I, as part of my uh, activities, uh, one of the things that I did was to um, mount a demonstration to support a local uh, illegal abortionist that was uh, had been arrested and was facing trial. And I was, as they say, I was on the Nell Committee, Mm -hmm. and um, I organized for us at that time uh, a a large demonstration, which was 500 people, uh, at the Hancock Park that, you know, brought me in touch with this illegal abortionist. Uh, One of my co-committee members, Mary Petrinovich, uh, was... uh, Connected with him to the extent that she brought students from that were, you know, needing an abortion from the campus. Uh, her husband was a professor at the University of Riverside. So I, I went over to this clinic, this storefront clinic, which was openly operating at that time, even though he was under, you know, indictment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and. Um, Basically, hung around because that's in that terms of the times. It was a very kind of laid back time, and people were kind of cool with things. And, you know, we uh, didn't uh, want to look like this was, uh, you know, anything unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as a consequence, um, Mary and other people, because I was not the only person that kind of was gravitating to support this clinic, uh, sometimes, you know, through picketing outside to support him, things like that. Mary pointed out to me, because we were observing this procedure, and it was quick, and it was effective. Uh, the women, you know, did well, um, and he used this device. He was far from trying to be shy about this. He was um, trying to make it into a cause celeb. What was the device? Or how did it work? Instead of the DNC, which are these about 12-inch metal um, rods that they put, uh, you know, instruments that they put into the uh, uterus to scrape out the insides, which, you know, have a a kind of a spoon-like knife edge. Mm -hmm. He had just this flexible cannula you know imagine one about half again as big and then it was attached to a 50 cc syringe he operated this he, he made suction by pulling out the syringe he he disengages and goes over and empties out the contents of that into a hole and then he, he he reattaches and and does this Oh, three or four more times until he has um, extracted all of the contents of the uterus. And this is very effective for early abortion. It's suitable up, you know, through those first three months.
0: So you're watching uh, him and he's, you're basically an abortion apprentice now. And then you see that this is a safe and simple, uh, safe and simple procedure in the sense that He's not just telling you that it is, but you see the women are doing well and you've seen enough of them. Is is that at the point where you think, like, I want to recruit other women to do this?
1: Well, you know, he, first of all, remember that we were defending him. He was the male savior. Right. Okay. And <laughs> that kind of grated against us. And he, he was typical male chauvinist pig. What can I say? If he was. He definitely um, enjoyed his position uh, of their being grateful to him and so forth. And um, Mary said, Carol, we could do this. It's not that hard. And then we, you know, yes, we would get arrested. We figured we would. But then we would go to trial and that would break the dam and get abortion um, made legal throughout the country. Now, I should say that it was already legal in California. Just as you pointed out uh, in your remarks, things were different in each state. Mm -hmm. And in California, they had passed a law, uh, they called it the Therapeutic Abortion Act, in which in the first um, trimester, um, if you did this, or actually through the second too, if you did this procedure in an, a, a what they call an accredited hospital, had to meet certain requirements, by a doctor, uh, it was legal. But doctors didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. I mean, let's get over this idea that doctors are all just rushing in there to help us on this problem. Uh, some doctors are, and they are just the most wonderful human beings you can meet. But the majority of doctors don't want to get their hands dirty and they don't want to have anything to do with it. So abortion was still highly difficult to get in California. Uh, I think maybe 30 a month, excuse me, 30 a week were being performed down at our large central hospital on indigent women, uh, mainly to learn the procedure, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But, the regular woman couldn't get a, could get one, so uh, we were in that um, that place where it was legal but not available, and um, so we were going to uh, make it available, <laughs> and uh, then uh, right at that time in history, uh, you know these trials that with big victories and so forth was a way that people were making a lot of social changes
0: so how did you go from there how did you recruit the women to to teach them and how did you end up setting up the clinic
1: well we it was just a few of us mary and i and a handful of other women that just kind of hung around the clinic and then we learned a little bit more uh mostly looking at each other and um uh, you know Learning how to do uterine size checks or a pelvic, you know. I mean, in other words, getting in, in sterile technique. All of, we weren't actually doing the, the abortions themselves, but we were gathering a lot of the knowledge that you need. Mm-hmm. But there were just a few of us. And so we put an ad in the uh, local women's newspaper. That was put out from a feminist bookstore in Venice, and told women in very vague terms that we were really going to do something. And thirty women showed up to see what we might have, might come up with, and we we're, were excited, our little committee. And it was my duty to explain this equipment that doc, that Harvey Carmen who was the name of the illegal abortion. This was the Carmen equipment. And it was up to me to, that part of the program was to share this with the women. How did they take it? Did you convince them that it was? Well, they were extremely interested, of course. It was a very riveted uh, attention. Uh, but as I went on and I described, oh, then you open up yours and you put this in the Um, uterus, and then you uh, turn it so that it sections out the material, I could see they were appalled. Yeah. You know, that this just didn't sound like any sensible thing that anyone would ever do. It just sounded very, very dangerous. And I stepped back, and I thought, something. I've got to do something. Now, I had myself uh, been very, very changed by actually having at this clinic seen a woman's cervix, having seen, you know, I've, I was in the procedure room when the speculum was in and uh, the gooseneck light was on the woman's cervix. And I said, God, that that's, that that's only a couple inches in from my outside and that beautiful pink cervix. I mean, I just, re- and it was so simple. Uh, in its structure, and healthy. And, you know, I, I realized it, it was very transforming for me. So I thought, well, maybe they, maybe that's what they need to. So I asked them to go with me. And I went across the room to, there was a desktop, you know, a desk there that I could climb up on. And I was wearing a, a long floor length dress. And I pulled up to skirt and I didn't have underpants so all I had to do was to put in a speculum which I had there and bring down the lamp from the that was over the the, uh, desk and ask them to come over and look how did they take that did they did they all come over and look they rushed over (laughs) (laughs) and they looked and they were delighted and they just it it completely changed the equation. Uh, we went from, you know, this trepidation and fear to joy. We, they were just so excited and so happy and asking good questions. and then they in turn, Mary got up and she showed her cervix and then a couple of other women did, and we ring out all these questions. and by the end of the evening,, um, you know, we just um, resolved to meet the next week, and um, we were on our way to starting this clinic. That was our our goal by the end of that meeting. Now that changed very rapidly uh, because the situation on the ground changed. Uh, finally, this uh, this abortion equipment. Uh, This uh, suction devices uh, began to be available and sold in the L.A. area to doctors. And some of them decided, well, they would try that. In fact, there was one uh, doctor who was located, his hospital was located in the industrial district. And um, it was an industrial clinic, you know, for industrial injuries. Mm -hmm. And... The word got out and women were lined up around the block all, you know, seven days a week to get abortions at this clinic. And um, so the pressure was off to an extent. I mean, obviously, it was a long way from being enough, but it wasn't like it was the week before. And we realized, well, if we did get arrested, who would be sympathetic? Because they'd say, well, listen, women could get legal abortion. So why were you, you know, opening this illegal clinic? So it didn't matter to us, though, because we had discovered self-help. We had discovered that what a difference it makes in how a woman feels about herself when she has direct access with and usually is in our situation we were with each other we could see other women's cervix so do you mean that you were you sort of
0: pivoted from providing abortions to sort of just providing general health education
1: exactly and we realized the power of that and also it so happened that in that first meeting, Lorraine Rothman was one of the people who traveled in uh, an hour to get to this meeting, and Lorraine's husband was all like Mary. Her husband was a professor at the University of California at Rivers at um, um, Fullerton, and she was his lab assistant. She was in. She was very um, gifted person. And Lorraine saw this device, what we had. And, of course, like the rest of us, she was thrilled with it. But she saw a possibility that we didn't see. What was that? Yeah, she saw the possibility of creating a whole new device. And she came with a prototype of it the very next week. And she called this well, we eventually called it. We didn't name it that night, but we eventually called it the Dellum. And we have used this now over 50 years with great success. It's And it is um, possible for minimally trained women. I mean, obviously, there are certain basic skills we need to learn. We can, as a team, extract our menstrual periods, or in the case where we're pregnant, we can have an abortion. So in
0: 1971, then you set up the Women's Health Clinic in Los Angeles. And this sort of, was it a crossbreed of sort of health education that was happening there and abortions? Or what was happening in the, did people know that abortions were
1: happening? Or what was it like? Well, you know, I kind of, I'll be honest when you say health education although that, of course, is what it is. Uh, nevertheless, the word has become associated to me with some authority up in the, there telling me about my body. Right, okay. And this isn't anything like that.
0: It was like self-exploration and empowerment and much more than just stuffy old education.
1: Exactly. It was self uh, self-education on steroids, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, because for one thing, we found that the whole profession of gynecology uh, is, you know, a stuff we can do ourselves. I mean, obviously we can't do surgeries and we're not going to, and we're not going to <clears throat> prescribe drugs to ourselves. Um, but in all the realms of, self-maintenance and home remedies and um, prevention uh, and sexuality, you know, or masturbation, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what the whole range of um, possessing this wonderful, uh, you know, equipment that we have and um, and stop thinking of it as uh, our vulnerability which at this moment it is, of course. Uh, it is the way in which uh, we're kept, you know, subjected uh, by a male-nominated society. But if we take command and we understand, then, you know, it's a revolution, but it's a revolution of a whole different type it's it's it it just simply um, shifts the balance of power completely, <laughs> completely.
0: <laughs> and so this was happening in the clinic. This was happening in 1971, and um, I know that the, the 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 police raided the clinic in 1972. Um, but can you tell us about what was happening when they raided, or how how all that came about?
1: Exactly, they did not let this go on. Uh, indefinitely, <laughs> um, uh, although the, the, we we held weekly uh, self help clinics where women came and um, we you know did self examination. Um, little did we know that there was a one of the women was a, a plant, oh, wow. um, a spy. Uh, of course, they didn't have any women that worked in the uh, their department except some lowly secretaries. So they had to have her, their secretary come. And she, of course, she didn't have any other, you know, anything special against us. And anyway, she um, reported on us and that was the basis for arrest and raiding the clinics, um, which at this point were self-help clinics. I want to be clear about that. Yes. And um, I and Corinne, Colleen Wilson, um, were uh, arrested, taken to jail, got out on the bail. And um, Colleen um, put, did a plea bargaining because she was soon to take her test to be certified as a teacher. And I was uh, the one that was observed putting yogurt into a woman's uh, vagina in a self-help presentation that we did. and. Um, so I stood trial. It was a couple weeks trial. And it att- uh, attracted national attention. And um, I won. <laughs> the uh, jury um, found me not guilty. What were you being accused of?
0: Not guilty of what? What, what was the accusation that you were not guilty of? What were, what were they charging you with?
1: Well, they had originally thought that they were going to find us doing abortions. Right. But we weren't. Um, and and they couldn't go that route, so they charged me with practicing medicine without a license, which was much less. It was six months in jail and or a thousand dollar fine. Uh, but that's still pretty heavy—six months in jail. Yeah. Uh, so when um, we called the other women in the area to support us, we went around the country. We put out calls to everybody. Um, we got support far and wide. Margaret Mead, for example, wrote us a letter of support. Uh, she said that the menstrual extraction kit was the most important invention for women of the century. And you know, so we we just went in and viewed it as an opportunity, actually, uh, to get our word out. And that's in that's what it did. In fact, it got it out so effectively that. That enabled us to get around the country, um, you know, spreading this to uh, now chapters and women's groups at the colleges and, you know, political left groups, you know, assortment of people in every community. And now, like
0: nearly 50 years later, (laughs) into podcasts. when I've heard you speaking before, before Roe v. Wade was overturned, it seemed like, wow, this, you know, like you could see the steps of progress at every point that you, you know, at every at, at every junction that you met. And now it just seems like, wow, is this just a cycle? Like, do we need to go back? Does there need to be another clinic? Like, do we need, I don't know that education is such a, I mean, I think actually still, you no, know, you're right, you know, education is still a a barrier for women because I think a lot of women don't, have education about their bodies or how they work. It's not something that's taught overtly. Um, but just this idea that these illegal underground abortions from, you know, people who are not qualified that might be quite dangerous are going to proliferate again
1: just feels really, really backwards. It, well, of course, we're going backwards. <laughs> but um, the state... Is going forward in their plan. And we we have to realize that we are pawns in this larger plan. And that I think is one thing that really, really distinguishes what the work that we're doing from the other very, very valuable things that are being done. I'm not making invidious here since I'm just pointing out that I have heard so many people say how could they take away our rights i think they need to ask themselves did we have did we have rights in the first place they could be taken away like this doesn't this give a little clue for people to think a minute and realize that hey what interests are being served here, besides these crazy, you know, uh, reactionaries that are outside picketing in front of our clinics, these these are these are people who have hold no sway in society. They have no respect to of the general community. Um, there are some of them, you know, just sincere people that have become very uh, become zealots. Uh, but they don't. They're not. put, what's causing this it is a much bigger picture and we have to acknowledge this and not just as we did 50 years just rest on our laurels you know our clinic i mean we never ceased teaching women we never ceased giving out speculums we still do self help i was in ireland um, a few years ago for my granddaughter's wedding and um, in Dublin, uh, Corinne Loperfito and I did self-exam. Women there loved it just like any place else in the world. Um, and um, we, we have to start reading the newspapers and thinking about this, how we fit into their master plan. they being like patriarchy or their being... Patriarchy, capitalism... Uh, you know, uh, a lot of names you want to give it. Yeah. And and it's not that hard, I mean, to change that equation. I mean, at least on the individual level. I mean, it's very, very, very difficult on the societal level because they hold the means to keep us, uh, our nose to the grindstone and, uh, you know, completely... Uh, Like, especially in this pandemic, I mean, who has time with, if they have children, to even um, think about such things as going to a self-help group? I mean, you know, never mind uh, the inability to gather in in intimate groups, but also uh, just the, the sheer time. Women have been hit so hard by this pandemic so of course we're we're they're hitting us at a very low time um, for us
0: yeah it's certainly uh it's I, I think you're right when you say that you know people are shocked it feels like oh my god they took away our rights but you know maybe um maybe we we let the ball drop a little bit carol i could talk to you all day thank you so much for joining me and um and for all the work that you do and it, you know I, I wish you all the best and uh Continue fighting the, the that that exhausting old fight.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. I uh, loved your questions, and I look forward to hearing more uh, what you're doing on this issue in the future.
0: Great, thank you so much. That is another episode of Basically, and that was Carol Downer. We are produced by Julie Hassett. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalogara, and we are part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.